I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 25. But I'm just going to read for us from verse 12 all the way to 25, just for the sake of context. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these three verses this morning, four verses this morning, these are some of the most important verses in Scripture. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to understand the significance of the bread and the cup which Christ instituted on that Passover night for his disciples and for his church. Help us to understand and help us, Lord, to live in light of these glorious truths that are here in these verses. Stir us to marvel at the fact that Christ has given his body and shed his blood for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Symbols, symbolism is wired into our humanity and our experience in this world. We are immersed in a world of symbolism. It's in our DNA to find an object that symbolizes or represents certain things or ideas. So, for example, the United States of America has as their national animal the bald eagle. 
Why did they choose the bald, bald eagle? To symbolize, to represent certain things about what they believe in regards to their nation. Things like strength and freedom. Canada's national animal is the beaver. I'll let you conclude what that means about us. What's funny is I was actually going through some of the, the countries and, and I realized that Scotland, does anyone know Scotland's national animal? Yeah, I was baffled by that. Unicorns don't exist. But they also wear kilts, so, um, so we'll give Scotland a break. But we as people feel like it's necessary to have something that represents who we are. We have symbols for all different kinds of things. For example, why is it that we decided as a culture and people to convey our covenant commitment in marriage through the giving of rings? Have you ever thought about that? Why did we feel like a ring was a necessary and helpful symbol to convey what making a covenant with, with a, to making a covenant with another person is all about? Now, you could say, well, it's not necessary, and, and in one sense, you're right. You can still get married without the giving of rings. That's totally fine. Yet, for some reason, we as humans feel it necessary to make specific objects and turn those objects into symbols for some deeper reality. My wedding ring is, in one sense, just a piece of metal. But because of what it symbolizes, in another sense... It's not just a piece of metal anymore. It's taken on a new significance. You see, if you said to me, Peter, get over it. Your ring is just a piece of metal. I would say to you, no, that's just not, that's just not true. When I look at this ring, I don't just see a piece of metal. I see commitment, covenant, sacrifice, love, forgiveness. I see till death do us part. It's not just a piece of metal anymore because it's come to symbolize deeper realities. See, the truth of the matter is we know instinctively that words are not always sufficient in conveying reality. Sometimes it's necessary to not only hear, but see these deeper realities. I think God has created us this way and has designed the cosmos this way, all of creation this way. The heavens declare the glory of God. That is, the heavens are meant to be a symbol of God's majestic glory and beauty. Now, you can hear that, the heavens declare the glory of God, and you go, wow, that's incredible. But if you look up at the night sky where there are no city lights, that statement takes on a whole deeper meaning. God has designed the visible creation to symbolize or convey deeper realities about God. You see, there's a reason God has given us both ears and eyes. The Bible is full of symbolism. In fact, the Israelites' liturgical worship and sacrificial system was full of symbolism and imagery. For example, the, the priestly garbs that they wore represented certain truths about who Israel was and who God was. The cherubim and the seraphim and the Holy of Holies. The veil over the Holy of Holies was a means of symbolism. It was saying that there was no access into the very presence of God. 
The showbread, which was placed on the Holy of Holies before the altar, represented Israel before God. The incense, the sacrifices, all of these things were visual experiences. And God intended for all of these things to symbolize deeper realities. And you see that also with the Passover meal that Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper. There were specific things they were to do and specific things they were to eat that were meant to symbolize the Passover events. There were the the bitter herbs that served to symbolize the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. The stewed fruit, which had the consistency and color of clay, symbolizing the making of bricks as slaves. And of course, there was the lamb itself, symbolizing, representing the the lamb that was sacrificed and, and the blood of that lamb placed upon the doorposts so that the messenger of death would pass over the houses of the Israelites. All of these things were symbols used to signify deeper realities. And here in the midst of this last Passover meal that Jesus will have with his disciples, Jesus introduces two new symbols meant to reveal and explain the events that are soon to take place when he will be crucified. In other words, these symbols reveal the meaning of Jesus' crucifixion and death. Here at this final Passover meal, Jesus dramatically reinterprets the meal and institutes a radically new observance for his followers. He uses both word, he explains, and symbol to communicate the most important truths in the universe. While they were eating, he took bread. And after blessing it, praying, he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Luke adds these words, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then he takes a cup and gives thanks. And again we're told he gave it to them and they drank it. And he adds these words, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Now, it's hard to imagine what the disciples were thinking in this moment. Did they truly grasp what Jesus was talking about? Most likely not until after his resurrection. But nevertheless, he did something here in this Passover meal that would have been shocking to them. Eat my body. Drink my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. What is Jesus doing here? Through these two symbols, he's providing a theological interpretation for what is about to happen when he is betrayed, flogged, crucified, and resurrected. In other words, he's explaining to the disciples the meaning of what is about to unfold and how it's related to Israel's past historical events. You see, at several points in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has done this. He's provided a theological explanation for something that has not yet occurred. 
So for example, when the, when the woman comes to him in Mark 14 at the beginning of this chapter and anoints his head, Jesus theologically interprets that act as preparation for his burial. He's already demonstrated to his disciples that he's going to die. He gives meaning to what she did. And here, Jesus is the one who acts, but also provides a theological interpretation of events that are yet to unfold, specifically his crucifixion and resurrection. See, in these few words, there are some very important truths that Jesus conveys to his disciples about his death. The first thing we see is this. Jesus wants to make clear to the disciples that he is laying down his life. It's not being taken from him. Jesus is laying down his life. It's not being taken from him. You see this symbolized in the acts of giving them the bread and giving them the cup. He took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And then he says, take, this is my body. Through the bread, Jesus is giving them his body. That is, he's giving his body up unto death for them. As Luke says, this is my body, which is given for you. And the same is true of the cup in verse 23. He gave it to them. This is my blood, which is poured out for many. See, Jesus is giving up his life unto death. It's not being taken from him. Now, why is this important? Well, for a few reasons. One, the events that are about to unfold, Jesus' betrayal, his unjust trial, his flogging, and ultimately his crucifixion, will visibly make it seem to the disciples that Jesus is a passive recipient of injustice. That Judas, the religious leaders, and the Roman soldiers are taking Jesus' life. But Jesus wants the disciples to understand neither Judas, nor Herod, nor Caiaphas, nor Pontius Pilate, nor the Jews are taking his life. He is laying down his life as an offering to God and a sacrifice of sin for his followers. Do you remember Jesus' words in John 10, 17 to 18? For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And then he says this, no one takes it from me. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Did Caiaphas and Pilate and the Jews have Jesus killed? Well, the answer, of course, is yes, but not in an ultimate sense. Jesus was laying down his life of his own accord. And by giving the bread and the cup to his disciples, he was demonstrating this to them. 
In Hebrews 10, the the writer of Hebrews is demonstrating that unlike the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament that never took away sin, Jesus is the supreme sacrifice who through his one sacrifice has done everything necessary to take away sin. His sacrifice was once and for all because his sacrifice actually took away sin. But what's interesting is that in Hebrews 10, the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 40, 6 to 8. And he ascribes those verses in Psalm 40 to Jesus himself. Words that Jesus spoke to the Father. So listen to what he says in Hebrews 10, 5-7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. So Christ said, verse 6-8 to of Psalm 40, Christ said this to his Father. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Jesus speaking to his father, Behold, I have come to do your will. I have come to do your will. Everything that is unfolding, even though to the naked eye, it seems that Jesus is just passively receiving injustice. He is in fact doing the will of God. And he wants his disciples to understand this. His life is not being taken from him against his will. Rather, he's giving up his life in order to redeem the world. The other reason this is important is because if, if Jesus is simply passively undergoing these injustices, then he's not actually accomplishing salvation and redemption. In other words... If Jesus' life is only being taken from him, and he's not laying down his life, then there's no redemption for you or I. Think about it this way. If all Jesus was, was a victim of injustice, then he didn't accomplish anything. He's just another innocent man who has been a victim at the hands of injustice. Whoop-de-doo, there's a lot of people like that. But what Jesus was doing, he was actually accomplishing something in his dying. He was laying down his life for our redemption and our salvation. You see, it's interesting that there's not a single place where Jesus is described as a victim in his death. The scriptures never refer to him as a victim. Why? Because he wasn't. He was a servant. Specifically, a suffering servant. In his death, he was serving, which means it was something he was doing. Victims are the result of something happening against their will. Jesus did not die against his will. He died because of his will. Jesus is giving his life over to death because in so doing, he was serving the lost by dying in their place and for their sins. He is the governing actor within his own suffering and death. And in his death, he took a sledgehammer to the foundations of sin and death. So Jesus is giving his life. It's not being taken from him. Second thing, I think Jesus 
Uh, Secondly, I think Jesus wants his disciples to understand that he is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. The disciples and Jesus, of course, are celebrating the Passover. They are remembering God's deliverance out of Egypt, but specifically the event in which they were commanded to take a lamb and kill it, and then take the blood from that lamb and place it on the doorposts of their homes. And when the messenger of death came, it passed over the homes of the Israelites because of the blood of the lamb. But the messenger killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. In other words, the blood of the lamb protected the Israelites from death and the judgment of God. And Jesus, in the midst of the Passover meal, where he takes the bread and the cup, is demonstrating to his disciples that he is in fact the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He is ultimately what the Passover lamb points to. Because just as the blood of the Lamb protected the Israelites from the judgment of God, so the blood of Jesus will deliver his followers from sin, death, and the judgment of God. You see, he wants the disciples to understand that when he is crucified to that cross, he wants them to see that on that cross resides the Passover Lamb that delivers God's people through his blood. This is why, for example, John says in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or in 1 Corinthians 5.7, the Apostle Paul is is speaking about sexual immorality and he's he's calling the, the believers to live holy lives. And in the midst of that, he says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. You see, after Jesus' resurrection... The apostles understood without any doubt that Jesus was the Passover lamb. That just as the blood of the lamb delivered the Israelites from death, so the blood of Christ has and will deliver his people from sin and death. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. He's the true Passover lamb and he wants his disciples to understand this. The third thing he wants them to know is that by his blood... He is establishing a new covenant with his people by which God will be bound to them and they to him. Christ is establishing a new covenant with his redeemed people by which God will be bound to them and they to him. You see, Jesus in his death is not simply the Passover lamb who delivers his people from sin and death. The end goal is not simply deliverance, but restored relationship and fellowship between God and man. That's why in the spilling of Christ's blood, he's not just delivering people, but establishing a new covenant between his redeemed people and God. And it's his blood that establishes this covenant. You see, in Jesus' death, he's actually combining Two events from the Old Testament. The first is the Passover lamb. But the second is the establishing of the Sinai covenant between God and Israel. See, here's what we have to remember. The Passover lamb in Exodus 12 
was not the formalizing of the covenant between Israel and God. It was Israel's deliverance, but it was not the formalizing of the covenant relationship between God and Israel. When did that actually happen? Not until Exodus 24, when they're at Mount Sinai. And this is what we read in Exodus 24, where the covenant between God and Israel is established. And that is Moses sent yet young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. You see, the Passover was never an end in itself. The goal was not simply deliverance, but it was establishing a covenant relationship with their deliverer, namely God. And that happens with Israel in Exodus 24, where the blood is sprinkled both on the altar and the people, binding God to Israel and Israel to God. And Jesus here at the Passover is alluding to both the Passover and the establishing of the covenant and declaring that his death will bring both deliverance but also a covenant relationship with God. As he says in verse 24, this is my blood of the covenant. In other words, Jesus did not come and die simply to deliver us from sin and death, as wonderful as that is. He died to deliver us from sin and death so that we could be restored in covenant relationship to God. See, the goal of redemption is not forgiveness. The goal is communion with God. And Jesus pours out his blood on the cross to deliver us and restore, establish a new covenant relationship between God and his redeemed people. A covenant that is superior in every way to the old covenant because the blood of Jesus is superior to the blood of rams and goats. You see, in Jeremiah, we're given a description of this new covenant that Jesus establishes by his blood. And this is what we read in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You see, when Jesus was on that cross, 
He was accomplishing Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. He was establishing the new covenant in his death. Friends, Jesus did not simply die and shed his blood so that you could know the forgiveness of sins. He died and shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins so that you could have covenant relationship with God. So that God would be our God and we would be his people. So that as Jeremiah says, we would know the Lord. Jesus, through the shedding of his blood, is establishing a new covenant between God and his redeemed people. And he's communicating this to his disciples through the bread and the cup. Jesus also wants his disciples to understand that he's dying as a sin offering for many people. Jesus' death is a sin offering for many people. I've already alluded to this at several points, but it needs to be stated clearly. Jesus is making it known to his disciples that his death, in which his blood will be poured out, the act is on behalf of, is for many. That's what he says, right? This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now this statement, without doubt, is an allusion to Isaiah 53, verse 12, the chapter about the suffering servant. And this is what we read in verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion, that is the Messiah, the suffering servant, with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. He will pour out his blood, he will pour out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus poured out his soul unto death. Jesus poured out his blood for the many. He bore the sin of the many. He took the sin of the many upon himself in place of the many. He was a sin offering for the many. This is the idea of substitution. Jesus substituted himself on behalf of the many and bore their sin and bore the curse of God for them. He paid the penalty for the sins of the many. This should draw us back to Mark 10, verse 45, where he states, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now there are two important questions that we need to ask. One, who is the many? And two, how many? One, who is the many? And two, how many? So who is the many that Jesus is referring to? Well, the answer according to Scripture is that the many are people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That is, Jesus did not simply die for the Jews, but he died for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He purchased the salvation of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. In Revelation chapter 5, John is given this 
glorious vision. And, and, and there's this, of course, discussion of who is worthy to open the scroll. And, and no one is worthy. But then there is one who is worthy. And it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And because Christ is that one who is worthy to open the scroll, the, the, the heavenly hosts and, and the people there begin to sing a new song. And this is what we read in Revelation 5, 9 to 10. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. And then he tells us why. Why Jesus is worthy. For you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Who's the many? People that Jesus has ransomed from every tribe, language, and tongue. He has ransomed people from Germany, China, Indonesia, Jamaica, North and South Korea, Russia, Belarus, Slovakia, Philippines, Cuba, Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria, Scotland, England, Palestine, Israel, Iraq, Lebanon, Croatia, Serbia, Thailand, Portugal, Spain, Italy, France, Greece, Iran, Afghanistan, Egypt, Algeria, Libya, Sudan, Brazil, Argentina, and the list could go on and on and on. He has ransomed people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He has ransomed both the rich and the poor. He has ransomed both the educated and the uneducated. He has ransomed both the intelligent and not so intelligent. He has ransomed both the healthy and the sick. This is who he has ransomed. Jesus is not just the savior of the Jews. He's not just the savior of the white man. He's the savior of the whole world, a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's who he's ransomed. That's the many. And hear me on this. Jesus doesn't fail in saving those whom he died for. There will not be one person whom Jesus died for who will fail to obtain salvation. Secondly, how many? We know the who, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, but how many people from every nation, tribe, and tongue? Well, we don't have the exact number, but there are some clues in the scripture. In Genesis 13, God is speaking to Abraham, the father of our faith, and he tells Abraham this in Genesis 13. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Can you count the dust of the earth? It's interesting that in Genesis, God tells Abraham that the number of his offspring is a number that no one can count. And in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation 7, John is granted this vision of people before the throne of God and Lamb. And this is what we read in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. How many? No one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and language, 
languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how many. A great multitude that no one could number. And let me just say this. I don't know why this is, but I find in our reform circles, we tend to speak about the smallness of the number rather than the grandness of the number, if that's a word. The number is more than you could possibly comprehend. There will be people who are in the new creation whom the blood of Christ has purchased who do not believe the doctrines of grace. There will be people in the new creation who disagree with you on government mandates. Will you remember that when you think of them? That you will spend eternity with them because they've been purchased by the same blood that you were purchased by. How many? A many that we cannot fathom. Jesus wants his disciples to know that he is pouring out his blood as a sin offering for many people. Jesus also wants his disciples to know that the cup of his blood will be followed by a cup of future glory. Jesus promises that the cup of his blood will be followed by a cup of future glory. You see this in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. These are sobering words, but also words full of future hope. They're sobering words because Jesus does tell them that he will not drink again of the fruit of vine with them. This will be the last time he eats and drinks with his disciples because just before him resides his crucifixion and death. But he also alludes to the fact that it won't ultimately be the last time that he drinks of the vine with his disciples because there is a day coming when he will drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now this most likely is alluding to the glorious messianic banquet when God makes all things new and Jesus will throw a feast for his redeemed people in the kingdom of God. But what this is also is proclaiming is that the cup of suffering and death that lay before Jesus isn't the end. By Jesus declaring to his disciples that he will one day drink the new wine with them in the kingdom of God, he is explicitly making it clear that he will not remain dead, but he will rise. The cup of suffering, the cup of his blood will be followed by a cup of future glory. And those who drink of the cup of his blood will also drink with him in the kingdom of God. And so we see he's telling his disciples that the cup of his blood and suffering will be followed by a cup 
of future glory. The last thing that I think he's telling his disciples is this. The eternal benefits, the eternal benefits of Christ's sacrificial death are only for those who take and eat his flesh and drink his blood. Jesus gives the bread to his disciples and he tells them to take and to eat. And they must take and eat. He also gives them the cup and they drink it. You see, Jesus, by giving the bread and the cup, he is demonstrating that he is laying down his life for them. But in order to receive the benefits of his sacrificial death, they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Do you remember in John chapter 6, Jesus is having a, a, a conversation or an argument with the Jews And he, of course, tells them that he is the bread of life. And there's this controversy that breaks out in light of it. He says this in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life, for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, And drink his blood. You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh. And drinks my blood. Has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh. And drinks my blood. Abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. You see, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that if you do not eat his flesh nor drink his blood, you do not have eternal life. Now it seems, at first glance, that we have a theological conflict or contradiction. In verse 47, Jesus says that whoever believes has eternal life. But then he adds, you also must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Which one is it? Even Paul, for example, in in Romans 3, 21 to 25, where he's articulating justification by faith, he says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So there is a righteousness from God that has been revealed separate from the law of God. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, and then he says this, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe for all who believe for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received 
Not by eating and drinking, but by faith. So Paul says that the benefits of salvation that Jesus accomplished through his atoning death and resurrection are received by faith. Jesus also says in verse 47 that all who believe have eternal life in John chapter 6. But Jesus also says that the benefits of salvation accomplished through his atoning death are received by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. How do we reconcile the two? How do we reconcile on the one hand, it is eternal, uh, if you believe you have eternal life, but you must also eat my flesh and drink my blood. You see, it seems that Jesus is adding a condition onto faith. So here's my answer. When Jesus says you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, he is not undermining salvation by faith but he is defining the essence of true faith. He is not undermining salvation by faith, but defining the essence of true faith. He's demonstrating that true saving faith, true belief, is more than just mere intellectual assent. True belief is feeding upon Christ's Spiritually, for the nourishment of your soul. You see, you don't just cook a steak believing it's going to be delicious and it will satisfy your physical hunger, but not eat it. The belief that it will satisfy your physical hunger is revealed in you eating the steak. This is why Augustine said, Believe and you have eaten. Believe and you have eaten. And you see this in John chapter 6. You see the parallel. In verse 47, Jesus says, whoever believes has eternal life. And then in verse 54, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that believing and drinking and feeding upon Christ are the same thing. Believe and you have eaten. You see, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ with the forgiveness of your sins, then you have eaten of Christ and drank of Christ spiritually. See, when I come to the Lord's table, I truly believe that his body, which is symbolized by the bread, is eternal bread for my soul. And I truly believe that his blood, which is symbolized by the cup, has been shed for the forgiveness of my sins. His blood has washed away my sin. This is what it means to truly believe. It means to feed upon Christ for the nourishment of one's soul. That he alone is able to cleanse you from your sin and make you whole. Jesus has done all that is necessary. But you must take, eat, and drink. You must believe. So when I ask you this morning, have you believed upon Jesus Christ? Do you believe? The best way to think about that is not, I believe intellectually that Jesus is the Son of God and that he shed his blood for the the sins of the world. No, no. When I ask you, do you believe? I mean, do you believe it in such a way that you're feeding upon Christ for the nourishment of your soul? Because if you're not feeding upon Christ, you're not believing 
These, brothers and sisters, I believe, are the things that Jesus was conveying to his disciples as he took the bread and the cup and gave it to them to drink. He wanted them to know that he was laying down his life and no one was taking it from him. He wanted them to know that he was the true Passover lamb, the one who would deliver them from their sins and death. He wanted them to know that in his death, he was establishing a new covenant between God and his redeemed people in which his people would be bound to God and God would be bound to them. He wanted them to know that his blood would be spilled as a sin offering for an unfathomable number of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He wanted them to know that the story does not end in his cup of suffering, but in a cup of future glory. He wanted them to know that they must believe in such a way that they feed upon him for eternal life. And he wants us to know this as well. Will you, this morning, believe? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for Christ, for his body and his blood. That blood which has been poured out for people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That blood which has been poured out for us. We thank you for that glorious sacrifice that has dealt with our sin and has brought us into everlasting relationship with you, Father. We thank you for Jesus. Help us to believe. In Christ's name, amen.